Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of I'm Stoner Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We've got an hour of science for you now. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you now until we hand over to Cam on Edit at 12. I'm very happy today to have one of my favorite colleagues on the line with me. Dr. Lauren, good morning. How are you? I'm very well. You're so sweet, Dr. Shane. I'm I'm joining you from my walk-in robe today. Yeah. <laughs> folks, one of the Best things... Best acoustics uh, in the house. Yeah, look, uh, you know, just to give you a sneak peek behind the scenes, folks, uh, Lauren came online about 15 minutes ago. I rejected her family room or wherever you were, <laughs> your office. <laughs> my office, And yep. uh, sent her to her walk-in robe, so I have a great view <laughs> of her or her husband's clothing. That's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> But if you're ever doing a podcast, there's nothing quite like the walk-in rope. It's one of the best locations it, to be. And it is really nice and warm and cozy. Like I'm feeling quite, you know, <laughs> quite in the zone here, yep. ready to talk science. Ready for a change of outfit if need be partway through. That's it, exactly. Folks, we've got some pretty good guests coming up uh, on the show uh, later. We uh, have an expert from the Children's Hospital coming on later in the show talking about endometriosis, and we have two PhD students who are hoping to get across to Antarctica soon who will be talking all about their adventures and their work on gravitational waves. But first of all, we're going to start off with some news from me and Dr. Lauren. So, Lauren, there's no one else here, so it's over to you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. yeah no, for sure so look i actually wanted to have a chat about something which is quite controversial and and really sparked my interest this week and it's this field of human animal chimeras so Ooh. this is a field that's yeah really rapidly progressing and there is good reason for it it's not just you know frankenstein experimentation what scientists are trying to do is look at whether or not we can introduce human cells into animal models so that we can use those new models to uh, test drugs, so be able to do some you know, pharmaceutical trials, and also potentially grow organs for human transplantation. Mm. So this has been happening for a while. So it's been happening in, in mice and rats, um, also in pigs, but it hasn't been particularly effective. And the reason for that is they think that um, the induced pluripotent stem cells that they introduce from the humans into the animals are just not robust enough to actually meld with the animal cells. And it makes sense, you know, that we're very evolutionary, you know, uh, separated from mm. those animals. So the advance that's been published a couple of days ago in the journal Cell uh, is actually taking it, I guess, to the next step. And this is where everyone is starting to get a bit nervous because scientists have now actually introduced human cells into monkey embryos. Oh, and okay. so, yeah, this is where it starts getting yeah. a little bit. I've seen that film. Yeah, I was going to say, I, it was funny, I was like, do I mention Planet of the Apes? Charlton Eston, <laughs> yep, I've seen that film, and the remake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, so it is, you know, obviously raising everyone's, um, you know, concern a little bit, uh, but I guess that going back, you know, we should think about the history of this. So, you know, this is not something new. So humans have been meddling, um, you know, with this for quite a long time. So you think about mules, for example. So mm. mules, obviously, a crossbreed of horses and donkeys. There's ligers and tigons, which are my favourite. So, you know, lions and tigers crossbreeding. 
Um, and that was a human intervention that um, began in the 1700s. So, you know, this is kind of just the next step along that path. But obviously, um, you know, non-human primates are very close to us and there are issues in terms of, you know, how, how close do we want to do this cross crossbreeding? And one of the questions there, I mean, when, when you give those examples, how much modification mm. biochemically and so forth was there? You know, when a lion and a tiger... Mm managed to breed together. I realised that naturally they, they wouldn't necessarily just do it out in the field, so there's some artificial mm. insemination required, but was there any, you know, was there any biological modification or was this just that those two species are close enough that you could do it? That's exactly right. Exactly right, Dr Shane. So, yeah, the previous ones were just really about, you know, either giving them just the opportunity or mm. potentially doing something like um, IVF or, um, yeah. you know, uh, intrauterine insemination. But, this is very different. Mm. So this is actually growing embryos in a, in a Petri dish um, and then introducing the human stem cells. Um, so I should make it clear, this is only in Petri dishes. So they haven't implanted these hybrid embryos into a monkey and the group that have published this week have said that they will not do that. So they're not interested okay. in taking it any further. So they're, very, they're, they're just looking at it as a, a basic mechanism investigation to see whether or not it can be done. But obviously, once once yeah. we know it can be done, then it's the question of how far do we take it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, one country in the world I know where there's a guy who's trying to do head plants, head transplants with dogs. So I mean, the, pretty much the sky's the limit in terms of the lack of ethics. If you if you want to find somewhere to do the sort of stuff that we're talking about not doing, you pretty much will mm. find that done somewhere. What one one interesting thing about this is, I mean, there's there's obviously the ethical issue of the use of animals, and we've, you and I have talked about this many times before, Dr. Mm. Lyon. Um, yeah. And in particular, when you get up to the primate stage, you know that in many places has been removed as one of the things that's been mm. done. I know it's still done in certain countries, but mm. this sort of sneaks back into that space in in a, mm -hmm. in a somewhat terrifying way. Mm -hmm. I think there's there's some good good arguments for understanding some of the biochemistry around this, but as you say, the chances that this will then be used. For those further steps that we don't want to see, um, mm. and, and we saw some of that with some of the cloning stuff coming out of China recently, and so forth. Yep. And you know, all of the CRISPR work, and you know, once you once you unpop that genie, it's pretty hard to say no, no, no. We didn't intend to do that. Yeah, we didn't want to do that exactly. Mm. And and look, and you know, I guess the, the flip side is, I mean, the science is very interesting. So it's actually a really mm. interesting paper. Um, so they managed to do it. They managed to. Um, grow 132 embryos um they didn't last very long and you know so obviously experts in the area are saying that's indication that this isn't a great idea because yeah. by day 19 there were only three left out of 132 so there is a huge drop off um but really interesting science so they were able to show through a number of imaging and functional testing that the cells were integrated in what, interestingly, what they can't do is control what the human cells grow into. So they basically can just introduce human stem cells into the embryo, but they then can't say, you know, we want to grow a human kidney. We only want the stem cells to turn into kidney cells. So that's what we need if we're going to be using this to grow yeah. human organs. Um, so there's obviously still a lot of science that needs to be worked on if, if this is a potential avenue for human organ transplantation yeah geez it's a it's a tough one i mean I, I cannot imagine the conversations that would go on in an ethics sort of review and i've i've often been quite stunned at what gets through some ethics panels and i know some ethics panel, panels work very very diligently to make sure things are appropriate but 
still there are some things you say, what what panel in their right mind let that get through? I mean, this must have been a really interesting one to, to get through. Yeah, and look, it's a fascinating paper because it's actually one of the first papers I've ever read where the discussion actually starts with a couple of paragraphs from the authors about the ethics. Oh, so they actually straight up at the um, at the start say, look, you know, we understand that this is a controversial issue. Um, they talk about the fact they went through numerous ethics committees. So they actually went through their own institution and then other ones as well. Okay. And so they're very upfront about the fact that they realise that this is an issue, um, but that, you know, the reasons yep. that they wanted to look at it are, you know, very important. Um, so I guess the the flip side is, you know, um, thinking about other ways we could do this. So obviously there's work growing organoids. So again, you know, rather than actually having to breed an animal to have organs for human transplantation, potentially, you know, there might be ways that we could actually grow organoids in a dish yep. and then sort of remove some of this you know, controversy, yeah. I guess. Yeah, well, well, it's 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 an interesting piece. We we'll have to keep an eye on that and make sure it, you know, keep keep a check on them. Make sure they're doing yeah, the right thing. You never yeah. know. But um, now, let me uh, speaking of uh, controversial things. Let me just bring up Along Musk for the moment. <coughs> people, oh yes, I think yes. he polarizes most people. Either love or love him or hate him. But he's are you going to pronounce his son's name? That's, oh, that's is it? <laughs> no, let's, let's leave it. <laughs> too hard, too hard. <laughs> too hard. Um, but the, the interesting thing is this is at a good week this week because um, mm. people will be very aware that um, when the previous US president was doing various things, um, like creating Space Force, which led to a great Steve Carell comedy, you know, I have to say mm-hmm. that's one of the good oh, outcomes. Totally. <laughs> uh, but he also mentioned going to the moon by 2024, which most people apparently who were involved in returning to the moon said, sorry, what, who, when? Um, mm-hmm. Because it yep. was uh, yeah, not an easy task. <laughs> Uh, but NASA has been working diligently on this on this plan and, and with the, the final goal, of course, being to Mars. But what they've done this week is they have awarded the contract for the lander. So some people would have a vague recollection that back in the Apollo days, the lander, which was called the Spider back then, um, was not built by NASA. It was built by external companies. This is often what happens. And mm. so they've been looking at who would build the lander for the next moon mission. And um, SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's company, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, is, I, I think, well known for both launching rockets and destroying rockets. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. that's that's how you learn. That's how you learn, you know, and they've, and they've done some pretty Thank amazing very- yeah, pretty yeah. amazing stuff. Um, yeah, and definitely. you know, we're both we're, we're we're both seen. Though I'm sure many people have seen that footage of two of the rockets landing after taking off at the same, pretty much at the same time, right next to one another, which is a spectacular feat of engineering. Mm-hmm. And the people working on that, you know, hats off to them because it really is a spectacular feat. But anyway, yes. uh, the two point eight nine billion dollar contract for going to the to um. Uh, the moon is uh, part of that will be going to Elon and SpaceX who are building the lander. And, you know, there's a, obviously a, a whole lot of requirements there, but one of them is that the idea this time will be that people going to the moon will be able to wander around for about a week, which is a fairly mm. long stay um, yes. before returning to the Orion spacecraft, which will be orbiting the moon to pick them up and bring them back to Earth. And, of course, I'm not sure if you put your hand up, Dr. Lauren, but um, (laughs) one of the goals that NASA has is for uh, a woman to be on the crew and also a person of colour. So quite a big distinction from previous, you know, previous missions there, which will be interesting to see how that selection goes. I'm I'm worried that Alon will try and put himself... Uh, in that crowd. Quite, quite, quite possible, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, maybe if it was a one-way trip. Either. Yeah, but uh, yeah, not sure how I feel about it. But look, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, 
you know, how uh, some of these very expensive projects, of course, require mm-hmm. a a public and private partnership. You cannot do them um, just off the government yeah. purse anymore. Yeah. And and you know, SpaceX has been delivering satellites from many different countries and companies now successfully into orbit, and they've been resupplying yeah. the International Space Station for quite some time. So you know, I think they're um they're doing okay in that in that bucket. They're they're doing okay. Um, oh. Completely naive question. So, you know, obviously this time when people are going to be walking around for a week, what's the longest time that anyone has been on the moon so far? Uh, it's about three days, I think, three or four days. Okay. Yeah, so it's a short okay. – it's been a short period. Um, and maybe yes. it's shorter than that. No, I think it's about three days. So it's a, it's a short period. But, you know, the – you are completely dependent on the life support systems of yes. the craft up there, and you know every t- every day you're there, there are just so many dangers and things that can go wrong. It's um, yeah. it's pretty serious, scary stuff. So, but um, but you know they're they're looking at new rovers and new ways of moving around on the moon and exploring a region of the moon that hasn't been explored before, with the idea of yep. setting up a permanent base, um, yep. which you know would be something that many of us thought. You know, I remember the TV show Space 1999, which seems like a really long time ago now, but when we were kids, we'd watch that and it'd be like, oh, imagine that moon base in 1999. It's so far off. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, it was, you know, 1979 when we were watching it. Um, yep, and we'd already yep. been to the moon six times. So it's like, yeah, we'll set this up next decade. No problem. You know, fast forward by 30 years and oops, no, no, no yeah, we're not there. Exactly. So but, we let that one slip. <laughs> I think it's a, it's an incredible. Um, it's incredible when you think about what was done in the 60s on, you know, what was essentially an unlimited budget, but, mm. you know, um, completely different technology and yeah. you know managed to do that you know fairly safe you know there were a few lives lost but fairly safely for mm. um, you know quite a quite a number of individuals who who managed to walk on the moon which was pretty spectacular so yeah we will hopefully you know i keep thinking i'm not getting any younger and we i would really love to i, I was i was you know only a child when when they were walking on the moon so i didn't really you know it's more interested in I guess milk than than moon landings, yeah. but, um, but yeah, would very much love to to see to see that. I think it would be a spectacular. Oh, spectacular it would be thing. amazing. Yeah, it would be amazing. I've been showing my four year old, you know, rocket launches when they happen, and yep. I just can't wait. I mean, imagine being able to show him someone yep. on the moon. Amazing. And remind the folks, hopefully this week, hopefully uh, a helicopter on Mars will be flying this week. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, it's been a slight delay, but uh, we'll see. Triple R. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. We still have Dr. Lauren on the line and our two guests for today. They are Dubutrik Chudpate from Swinburne University and Isabel Romero Shaw. Good morning to both of you. How are you? Hi, very good. Thank you. Now, uh, you're both PhD students at the moment. Um, firstly, Isabel, I'll start with you. How far in are you on your PhD? So I'm in my third year. I think I'm about halfway through my third year now. Oh, so writing up. Yeah, <laughs> maybe preparing to <laughs> preparing to. I like that preparing to write up. That's fantastic. And Dimitri, what about yourself? Are you uh, how far in? I'm about to submit in a month, so I'm writing my thesis. Oh wow, that's excellent! Yeah, you must be almost done if you're submitting in a month. Congratulations on that. I always uh, I recall fondly when my very harsh, super, very fantastic but harsh supervisor said that I could write up. I kind of felt like I was already there, um, which is a nice feeling. Who cares if someone has to examine it? You know, if you've got a good supervisor, you're pretty you're pretty much across the line, which is which is good news. Now we've got you both on because we wanted to talk about um, well, first of all, a little bit about your work, but also about the fact that you're hoping. 
and I think you're you know, pretty definitely going to do it, um, to go to Antarctica on the Homeward Bound program sometime perhaps March next year. So, Isabel, first of all, I might just chat to you a little bit about your your work because we've discussed the work that you're both doing or, or stuff related to it over the last few years with great excitement, and that's around gravitational waves. So you're part of, both part of the LIGO program. Tell us what you're doing, Isabel, what are you working on? Yes. So as you say, we're both working in gravitational waves and we're actually kind of looking at the same problem, but from different angles. So the kind of big question that we have to answer at the moment is, okay, so we've seen all of these binary black holes merging with the LIGO and Virgo experiments, which are the big detectors that we use to detect gravitational waves. They're like these huge antenna that detect these tiny vibrations. Um, And the question is, okay, so we've seen all of these things, but how are they actually forming? So I'm looking at the signals and trying to use those to work out how they're forming. And Debatri is coming at it from kind of the other angle of simulating the, the events leading up to the mergers. Mm. And um, in terms of the number that we've detected at this point, where are we? Because I remember there was the first one and then a couple of months later there was like three more and, and, and now it's sort of like, oh, there's so many I can't count. You know, they, we've, we've done well, haven't we? There's, there's a lot. Yes, absolutely. So every observing run, the, the detectors get more and more sensitive. So in the first observing run, we had you know, a few detections. And then in the second observing run, we had about 10 detections. And then in the, just the first half of the third observing run, um, we got about 40 more. So now we have about 55 or 50-ish detections overall. Yeah, I remember when you got the first one, I gave a talk uh, not long after that at the um, Penliness and Grammar on Astronomy, and I told them about this detection. I said, well, you know, about thir- – I can't remember the numbers exactly, but I said about 13 billion years ago, these two black holes collided, and, and this wave started moving across the universe. And, you know, then about a couple of hundred thousand years ago, humans started standing erect. And, you know, several thousand years ago, we built the pyramids, and a 100 years ago, Einstein was born. And then about, you know, two years ago, we started building this experiment just in time for this wave that's been traveling for 13 billion years to come bus- past and us detect it that's that's kind of weird <laughs> it was so, it was this you know mind-boggling but then when you when you hear about just how many we're detecting again it gives you an idea of the the whole size of the universe thing and just how many of these are going off at every given moment now um Dimitri, what about you what what specifically are you working on in this project Uh, So my background is in physics, um, and I mainly do the astrophysics bit, which means I um, start the problem, as you will say, from the other end. I know the theory. So I say, okay, the universe looks like this, the galaxy looks like this, stars form like this, and stars die like this. Mm. So how are they? What are the population of the black holes? What are their masses? What are their spins? And then I check that with the observations that Isabel is definitely giving us. And uh, then if they don't match, um, I understand that the physics is wrong somewhere. We need to change something in it. But matches, voila. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. And um, Isabel, with the, the sort of data that comes in, I, I originally had this idea that, you know, there was just kind of a bump in the road and we detect that. But there is so much more information that people are talking about. I mean, can you give us a bit of a feel for that? Because I think some people, would, you know, it's like a ripple in the pond and the ripple goes past, but there's so much information that we detect in the ripple itself that gives us a new type of astronomy, essentially. That's true. It's really incredible how much you can learn about these systems from these really, really tiny ripples that we're detecting. So when we talk about these ripples as well, just to say, they're like a fraction of the size of a human hair, the amplitude of these things. They're so, 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 so small. Um, But from that, we can tell things like 
where the black holes are in the universe or the neutron stars, whatever these objects are. We can tell things about their mass and how they're spinning and how they are kind of oriented in relation to each other. So if they're tracing out circular paths around each other or what a different shape of that path might be. Um, and just a lot of other things as well, like it's kind of physicky kind of mm. parameters that I can't explain very well. But if there's some deformation in the neutron star, we can also tell that from the signals and things like that. Yeah, it's phenomenal. <laughs> Yes, Lauren, go ahead. Sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off. Um, <laughs> Isabel, look, I'm so intrigued by um, the, the fact you said there's been three observation periods. Is that right? Yes, three observation periods with detections. Sure. And how long does it take to set those up? You know, because I think people sort of think, okay, yeah, you just do it on a Monday, then you do it on a Tuesday, and you do it on a Wednesday and you finish. Mm-hmm. But how long is in between each of those periods? Yeah, it's, um, I can't remember the exact the exact time, but you can kind of think of it like the first detection happened in 2015. And since then, we've kind of just finished the second half of the second observing run. So that's three observing runs in kind of five years-ish. So there is a big amount of time between those runs where the detectors get kind of revamped and improved. Mm. And then you guys get to analyze all the data as well. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm very, very grateful that we have that little period of time to kind of relax <laughs> yeah that, it's amazing now Dimitri one of the things I noticed and let me just double check that this was your work and, and not Isabel's because it gets I got sent so much amazing stuff um, from the two of you and, and that is the idea of the carbon footprint that astronomers leave relative to everyone else in the world you know the rest of the public and, and that being much higher I, I hadn't really thought about that um, tell us about that so that is actually Isabel's work, but I'm a little bit aware of that. Well, very much aware of that after she calculated it out, essentially. So astronomers leave this enormous amount of footprint because they travel mm. used to travel COVID. Uh, plus, depending on uh, the type of machines you're running, not just astronomers, it can be other pieces as well. You need a lot of energy yep. to do that. And most of the time, we haven't actually <laughs> nicely propagated uh, into using recyclable um energy essentially mm. so you're enormous amount of footprint than um than any other normal person who's in any other regular job and that's really threatening because uh we are the ones who should be more responsible because yeah um yeah yeah look i, I suppose it's something we, we expect of all scientists and I, I remember a couple of years ago saying I, I wanted scientists to travel less to fewer conferences i did not intend the pandemic to um, make that happen, but it was a good recommendation at the time. But you know, it, it sort of has been a bit more extreme than I was expecting. Now, um, we should get on to before we go the, the big adventure to Antarctica. Um, Isabel, what, what's the story there in terms of what you both need to do? Because this is a fairly expensive scenario, but it's really important. It's only women in STEM to get to, uh, get to go on homeward bound. So, what, what does it mean to you, and what do you, what do you need in terms of support? Yeah, so it's a really incredible opportunity. It's basically taking, over a period of 10 years, a 1,000 female scientists who can be leaders in STEM, so training them up with all the leadership training they need to be the leaders we need for a sustainable tomorrow. Um, And so in the course of doing that, we go on this three-week trip to Antarctica. um, And in order to do that three-week trip to Antarctica, we need to raise about uh, $35,000 Australian dollars each, which Mm. is pretty big chunk of money yeah and Dimitri you're you you're both are writing a children's book as part of that um to help that tell us about the book yes so it's about women in science and we are starting from basically ancient world 
and to the modern era with people who are alive. And we are mainly focusing on physicists, physicists, astronomers, that side of things. And it's really interesting because Isabel has got all the illustrations. She handled them. So wow. Great. Um, I'm doing the biographies, uh, but with just the general biography, we're also adding bits and pieces of the discoveries of these uh, female scientists. And uh, children can learn about, okay, say, atom or how electron jumps, uh, these things. Fantastic. So, yeah. Well, you know, as as astronomers, I'm sure you both appreciate the importance of vision. You're on the line with a you know a vision specialist right now. She's available for profiling. I'm sure she's you know always available. Yeah, I do not think I can as a physicist. <laughs> well, we both know that very well. But uh, it's a very good scientist that you you could profile. Um, now, in terms of where, where should people go to support you? I know you have a, a you know GoFundMe account and so forth, Isabel. Where where do you want people to head to give you guys support to make sure you get to go on this trip? Oh, thank you. Um, yes. So we have a GoFundMe page, which is called Get Isabel and Debauchery to Antarctica. But I think if you just search GoFundMe Isabel Debauchery, then it comes up. Maybe include Antarctica in there. And you can read more about our story there as well and about kind of what we are hoping to do through this program. Fantastic. Well, it sounds great. You guys tweet some stuff out. You know, make sure you link us into that. We'll retweet it today and get you as much support as possible. Great talking to you both. Good luck. We would love to hear about your adventures when you get back. I'm assuming you'll go because um, I'm sure you'll get the support needed, but it'll be fantastic. And I have to say, from what I hear, as astronomers, you'll be particularly impressed by the sky down there because us dirty humans haven't completely ruined it as we have the rest of the world. So good luck and um, thanks so much for the chat today. Amazing. Thank you so much. And we are about to interview Professor Sonia Grover. She's a gynecologist and a pain medicine specialist at the Royal Children's Hospital and is the director of the Department of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. Sonia, thanks so much for coming online with us. We're going to talk about some really important stuff today. How are you going there? Important and very interesting stuff. Yes, indeed. Now, first of all, congratulations, because you have been awarded through the uh, Medical Research Future Fund, I understand it, $2 million, is that correct, for endometriosis research? Oh, let's not exaggerate. (laughs) (laughs) 1.93. I love it. Can't you just put it here? It's fantastic, and it focuses all on adolescence. So we, we're really trying to get to the bottom of this, the start of all of this. Yeah, so look, let's, uh, we've got a bit of time here to talk about this today. So I want to sort of wind back to some of the, I suppose, some of the real concerns that, um, that we should be having that aren't talked about quite as much, and that is just really having an understanding of women's pain, especially around menstrual pain and so forth, you know, in that monthly period from, you know, very early in life, probably I'm guessing in some cases 12, 13 years. I mean, you must see this all the time there at the children's, yeah? Yeah, look at the children's. I get to see, I mean, there are some young women who don't get pain, but there are some who from the very first period they have, they are vomiting, they're missing school, Mm. you know, they're curled up in a ball, and and one of the biggest, you know, the worst things that happens to some of these girls is that it's trivialised and it's turned into, it's just period pain, you know, Mm. you'll grow out of it, um, put up with it. And, you know, for some of them, they either miss school regularly every month or they're actually present but they're not present. You know, they're sitting there in pain or they're in sick bay. And, you know, there was an interesting study recently that, that 
teachers haven't really even noticed that some of the girls are suboptimal or in sick bay once a month. So, so it's not just you know, families saying get on with it. It can mm. be teachers who are missing it and it can be GPs who are just saying, oh, it's just period pain. Yeah. How, how much of this, and look, I know this is certainly true in the taste case of uh, teachers and not, you know, nothing um, inappropriate about them in this case, but there is a training gap here, isn't there? Um, obviously, teachers are not trained in any way to, reg- you know, as part of their education program for, to be a teacher. This isn't part of that. Um, but similarly, there seems to be a pretty big gap in the knowledge of many healthcare professionals in this space, especially in the adolescent range. Yes, I'd agree with you. I mean, there's beginnings to be some school education programs that are occurring, but one of the things we don't know yet about the school education programs is whether they work. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm old enough to have been around when they introduced you know, breast screening and women had to check their breasts every month. And, you know, women used to feel guilty if they weren't checking their breasts every month. But when they actually did the follow-up study, they actually showed that it didn't actually make any difference to presentations. So what I don't know is given that there are a few different educational programs that have been beginning to be introduced in a few different places around Australia, are they any good? Mm. Um, and so, in fact, one of the things that we're hoping to cover within our long step study, which is the longitudinal study of teens with endometriosis, period and pelvic pain, long step, um, which is an Australia-wide study, is we're going to be asking young women, have you had any exposure? And we're, we're planning that halfway through this five-year study, we'll actually introduce quite an intensive educational program in Victoria and then see if it changes what's happening and how young women present. Yep. Now, before we get into that big three of you know, endometriosis, pelvic pain and period pain and, and how they differ and so forth or how they're the same, I, I wanted to talk to you first about the issue of pain itself because this seems to me to be something, you know, I've, I've attended many emergency rooms and so forth over the years and two things seem to happen to me. One is women's pain and men's pain seem to be treated differently as far as I can tell. And secondly, every now and then someone pulls out this thing they call the pain scale, which I find is a a disturbingly useless tool, but I understand there's some clinical value, but alongside it, there isn't something like an impact scale. For example, you know, I might have an eight out of 10 on my pain scale, but I can still ride a bike. I'm good to go. Lauren has a three out of 10, but she can't go to work. And so there doesn't seem to be that context associated with it. I mean, you, you work in this space. I mean, what, what's the scenario there? How are we going? Are we, are we 100 years out of date or is it working well? What's your impression, Sonia? Look, it is really, 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 really challenging, isn't it? Because, you know, the other thing that we're interested in understanding is if you think your pain is going to ruin your life and it's never going to get better, Mm. how is that going to also influence how you feel that pain? And remember, you can only feel that pain because you've got a brain that interprets that pain. And and so that's really the challenge. How do you untangle, you know, if you step on a nail when you're having a peaceful time, it's agony. If you step on a nail when an angry dog is chasing you, then, um, you know, you don't notice 
the the nail in your foot because you're much more anxious about about the angry dog that's about to you know tear mm. your leg off. So it's pain is very complicated. Yeah, and and my understanding is the body can come to the to a point where pain is switched on and doesn't know how to switch itself off as well, which makes it even more complicated. Yeah, that's correct because you you can become centrally sensitised with regard to your pain and then a small pain becomes a much bigger pain. And, And in some respects, you know, when I start thinking about period pain, I think about bushfires because something that started with period pain can then turn into bladder pain and can turn into Mm. bowel, well, not turn into, but means that the next door neighbours are now all super sensitised and a little bit of pain from your irritable bowel becomes enormous crippling pain and what was a little bit of discomfort in your bladder becomes agony from your bladder. And it's not that you're thinking it, it's your nervous system that's just on the lookout Mm trying to protect you but has now forgotten how to switch, you know, it it only goes 0 to 10. It doesn't have 1 and 2 and 3. It just goes full bore. So so there are several different things that are happening there that are exaggerating. Well, not again, you know, exaggerating it makes like it sounds like you're in control of it, Mm. but you're not. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean, our bodies are amazing at many things, but, you know, just as is the case with autoimmune diseases, sometimes the parts that protect us the most actually cause us the most damage. Absolutely. That's actually a really good example. Mm. Now, Sonia, let's talk about, first of all, the um, because pelvic pain is obviously the whole region. Let's talk about the difference between just a normal period and what's going on there and the pain associated with that and endometriosis. Can you sort of unpack that for us, what, what these two different things are? No, I can't. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and and there have been quite a number of different studies that have been done that look at, and in fact, I've just completed one now in adult women, where we looked at women who'd been referred with pain, mm-hmm. pelvic pain, by their GPs to the Mercy Hospital. And we looked at who, which of those 500 women actually had a laparoscopy? And then we looked at, of the women who had a laparoscopy, how many of them had endometriosis found? So what predicted who had a laparoscopy? Well, for the first time, we actually demonstrated that which surgical gynaecological unit you attended more than doubled your risk of a laparoscopy. Interesting. So if you, if you attended a group of gynaecologists who've got additional expertise in doing complex um, endometriosis surgery, so they're really into endometriosis, um, they were more than twice as likely to offer surgery and provide surgery to the women compared to a different unit that had more capacity to manage pain from a hormonal perspective or thinking about pain as pain. Um, When we looked at the women who had laparoscopies, each of the two units were just as likely to find endometriosis so that 
the team who were good, who were better at doing pain management things and hormonal things were just as likely to find endometriosis. It's not mm. that they were hopeless surgeons. Um, but there was no difference in the pain scores and between the ones who had surgery and didn't have surgery. And more importantly, or the question you're asking is, was there anything that identified the women who had endometriosis? And the answer was no. Hmm. So that, that's very interesting. So just just sort of backing that up a little bit, the idea of the condition endometriosis is where endometrial material from the uterus is growing outside of that area. So it can be growing anywhere. My understanding is it can get to the lungs and get to all sorts of places in the body and the brain, yep. everywhere. Yep. And then, yep. then it goes through and it works in the same way that the material in the uterus works. So it goes through and it produces materials yep. and the hormones and, and grows and every month it does its thing and so forth. But when it does that, if it's a t- attached to the bowel or it's attached to an ovary or it's attached to anywhere else where it shouldn't be it causes big problems and and so it can cause big problems because in fact we know that when you laparoscope women who are having their tubes tied mm. who've got no symptoms at all you, and mostly when we tie tubes um, you know we dive in put the clips on the tubes and get out and we don't yep. actually have a careful look around but when people have done the careful look around 20 to 30% of women who they've had kids, that's why they're having their tubes tied, um, 20 to 30% of women have got a small amount of endometriosis. And the important thing to remember here is that endometriosis can be anything from a tiny spot that's not much bigger than a grain of sand through to a lumpy, big, you know, 10 centimetre glued to everything else. The vast majority of the endometriosis that we find here in Australia in the context of pain is the little tiny spots. Mm. And you're left with asking questions whether the little tiny spots are actually responsible for the pain. Yeah. Is, but, do, uh, oh, sorry, Lauren, go ahead. Sorry. Yes. sorry. So now, that actually probably, probably leads into one of my big questions about endometriosis, and that is that it seems to be being diagnosed more and more often. And is it just because of this? Is it that our imaging is better now and that we're looking more? Is that why more is coming up? Or do you think that there actually might be more cases of problematic endometriosis? Uh, difficult question. Why do people always ask the difficult questions? <laughs> I, I think we're certainly looking more often. And, and I think one of the things when I, if, when I talk to my colleagues in Hong Kong or in Malaysia, you know, the amount of endometriosis they find at the end that we find. So, you know, 80% of the endometriosis we would find, if not more than that, is the tiny wee, you know, grains of sand, little tiny spots. Um, Whereas if I talk to my colleagues in other parts of the world where they're not doing as many laparoscopies, they are finding the severe end of the spectrum. Now, one of the other things that's really worth, I, I got worried when we did our study because we we were finding very few cases of the severe end in this pain cohort. So we actually, because of my anxiety, we went back and and we looked at the same time interval and we looked at how many women had been diagnosed with endometriosis who maybe hadn't been referred to the hospital because of pain. And, in fact, of the women who had endometriosis diagnosed, less than half 
had had their presentation because of pain. And the other half, you know, there was no mention of pain, but they had they were coming because of infertility issues mm. or because someone had found an enormous big lump that happened to have been found for completely different reasons, but not pain. And so I suppose my colleagues overseas, particularly in Asia, it, they're seeing those groups rather than pain. So we can ask ourselves the question, why do my colleagues in Malaysia and Hong Kong not see patients with pain and do laparoscopies? And is there a greater tolerance of you just have to put up with it? Or do they not experience the pain? Um, do yeah, so so yeah. The, there's lots of uncertainties up in yeah, there. Yeah, it's, it's it's a super uh, interesting. I mean, there's so much complexity there. I mean, what, one other question I have for you there, Sonia, is around the diagnosis process because I know you know having gone through this with my partner as well. There's there's an element where at one point someone uses an ultrasound. There's another element where someone uses an MRI. Um, but the golds, and I should say a three-Tesla MRI, so very low-resolution MRI, not one of the nice big seven-Tesla ones down at the, the, the Flory, for example, but, you know, there's a big difference between the two. Um, but then the gold standard seems to be um, actually getting in there laparoscopically and having a look around. I mean, what's the scenario there? Because it seems as though the, the detection threshold is very problematic and, and having to actually have surgery to know for sure, you know, how are we going? But- but we need to turn the question around the other way because do I need to find a grain of sand-sized mm. endometriosis? And the evidence is increasingly that I don't. Um, and so uh, there are two different pathways to, to walk here um, so that others have shown and I've just shown at the study at the Mercy is that of the women who have a laparoscopy, when we look at two-year data, you you should never look after an operation at six months or 12 Mm -hmm. months Mm -hmm. data because there is a placebo component in what we do. So if you're looking at data out at 18 months, two years, 30% of women were actually worse off post-laparoscopy. 10% were no different on their pain scores. So this is women... We're comparing their own scores to themselves. So, yep. you know, yep. there's the, um, and 60% were somewhat better. Now, of the 60%, that was not the group who had endometriosis found, who had endometriosis excised. Some of it was, but some of it wasn't. And a whole lot of those women had actually had marinas put in at the same time. And we, we know from another subsection of that study that if you had a marina put in, that you were highly likely to get better pain-wise, independent of whether you'd had surgery or not. So the marinas work so so that's one aspect of saying do we need to operate and does it make a difference and that's not very convincing Mm. and the international studies say that and when we turn this question into teenagers we've i've been very conservative and my team have been very conservative with regard to trying to make the diagnosis of the tiny wee spots of endometriosis. We'll do an ultrasound. If you've got something big and lumpy or something there, then absolutely we'll, you know, we'll be thinking slightly differently. But if we can't see it on an ultrasound, then I'm not particularly keen to operate because I can introduce you to women who've had 15 laparoscopies mm. by the time they're 22. And that's not good health care. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, now, we have a very low, with our very low rate of laparoscopies, we still made 90% of our young women better by doing things like making periods lighter, making um, skipping periods, putting marinas and doing things to fix a period. So, so we were working on symptoms. We were not focusing on whether there was a spot. We were focusing on the suffering, the school missed activities, mm. the, you know. So the focus was not on the lesions but on the symptoms of pain. Yep. Now, when we, I, I felt anxious because I'd had such a low laparoscopy rate. And so we actually followed a cohort and it was a small cohort, which is why we're doing this much bigger study. So we had, we tried to follow these girls at five to 15 years later. Yep. So it's a mean, mean of 10 years. Now, Unfortunately, young women often move and they change their names and they're hard to find. So we only found half of them. But of the half we found, we had a 95% participation rate with an average of 10-year follow-up. Now, that is very impressive. Mm, it's great. Can... So did we have any severe endometriosis in a cohort of young women down the track? And the answer was no. Quite Half of them had been laparoscoped in adult when they'd left our care from the children's hospital, um, half had had a laparoscopy. Not one had moderate or severe endometriosis and there, half of them had a few small spots. Mm. The fertility rate was as good as anyone else's, if not better than state figures when we age matched them. So from a non-aggressive, non-operating approach we seem to have had very good outcomes. Yeah. One, we fixed them while they were young, and two, they did not have severe endo given that they had pain mm. and problems when they were young teenagers. Yeah, no, certainly a good good series of outcomes. Sonia, we're going to have to draw this to a close, but look, congratulations again on getting this money. I think it's an area that is affecting so many women. There are still so many questions running around about this and so many issues in, in the healthcare sector with regards to this and education. So heaps to do. Um, congrats to you and your colleagues. I know you have a couple of other colleagues involved in this work, but thank you so much for chatting to us today. And if anyone wants, anyone young wants to join in, look at Long Step, L-O-N-G, Long, S-T-E, Triple P, um, and you'll find us. Three, triple Uh, you are listening to Three Bar, and uh, we've only got a few minutes to go. Dr. Lauren, I just wanted to mention something uh, very important. Uh, well, important to me. Um, hopefully important to others as well. But it is um, it is maybe uh, known by a few that I'm one of the ambassadors for the Lost Dogs Home. And I did this after adopting a couple of cats, uh, which have been, you know, transformational to, to me because um, I was an anti-cat person until I got a, had to go and get immunotherapy uh, potential sort of scenario going found out i wasn't allergic to cats i was allergic to dust mites so cats are okay as long as they're kept inside yeah. clean that was a good outcome a uh, good outcome that they didn't need to get a needle a month for two years to <laughs> train <laughs> much better outcome. But Cuddle, look, cuddles with cats is much better yeah yeah they're great but um 
one of the things that people are probably aware of is there was a huge uptake of animals um, from many of the shelters, actually, across the country during the start of the lockdown, and that was fantastic. But but that's dropped off now by some, um, you know, 50%, I think. And and so there hasn't been a handback of all those animals, which is great news because people, you know, they've learned to love these animals and they've kept them fantastic. But we're coming out of that period of um, summer where there's a lot of um, cats that end up breeding on the streets because cats aren't desexed, and this causes a massive number of kittens to be available and so forth. So I have to put out this good message from the Lost Dogs Home because at the moment they have more than 900 cats and kittens in their care, which is a stunning number, but they are getting very close to capacity. And about 40% of those 900 cats are adult cats. Now, Adult cats, uh, as you would know, um, are kind of, in a way, the easiest animals to have because they kind of do their own thing. They laze around. Uh, They're not like kittens. You don't have to entertain them every day. You don't have to walk them like a dog. They're pretty good. But, um, yeah, look, the Lost Dogs Home really needs everyone's help in this space. And I know the Triple R audience is always big at at doing this sort of stuff. But one of the best parts at the moment, of course, is if you want to adopt one of these older cats, you can do so for just $20. You don't need to make an appointment. You can just rock up at the Lost Dogs Home in North Melbourne, go have a look at what's there and adopt one of these cats. And they're all vet checked. And they're, they're, you know, I, I found this kitten the last time I was there that I wanted and they said, nope temperament is not suitable at this point and you know they're just still they match you up so you're not going to end up with something that's a problem if you do have a problem you can go back it's 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 an easy process and i i have the highest respect for the people there i've seen what they do i've been on many tours of the shelter you know they 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 do some great work but they do need help um now if you can't take one of these animals full time you could also look at just becoming um one of their their fostering parents so you can foster these some of these pets for a short period until they can find a home for them and you know i'm the recipient of a kitten that was in that that scenario and you know i'm very thankful to those who fostered those cats because they they have beautiful temperaments as a result of that care so anyway folks get on the lost dogs home if you're interested and if you you want to adopt a cat they really need help with this um and you can adopt an older cat so um they're not uh, you're not going to have it for 15 years necessarily but it would be a big help so there you go anyway Get on board, Dr. Lauren. How many are you going to go and grab? Oh, wonderful. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know if my husband wants me to have any more pets, but yeah. <laughs> fantastic. I'm, I'm all stocked up as well. Two cats for, for my yeah, small apartment yeah. is more than I can have, but they're great. They're great. Kids love them and they're great and they really bring yeah. a lot of joy to our lives. So, oh, and, the, and the health health effects of having pets yep. and, you know, cuddles with cats is, is very well proven. So. Yeah. So, look, we're going to go. I should say Lost Dogs Home has dogs as well, not just cats. But, yes. um, but they're, yeah. they're, they're, at the moment, because of the kitten season, they really have um, have a need for some help um, with these animals, and they want to rehome them all, so that would be great. So, anyway, we're going to hand over from the team from Edith. Thank you, Dr. Lauren. Great having you on the show again. So much fun, as always. Thanks, Dr. Shane. And, uh, folks, uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We'll chat to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.